Welcome to the New Books and Fantasy and Adventure, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical fantasy Falcon series and Girl of Fire, the first in a YA fantasy series. My August interview is with Laura Ruby. We'll be discussing her latest novel, 13 Doorways, Wolves Behind Them All. Here's my review. Francesca and Tony are brought to the orphanage when their mother suffers a breakdown and dies, and their father gets involved with a new woman. Their story, set in Chicago of the 1940s, unfolds during the course of the novel. There's another girl, too, though, whose voice intersperses herself into the everyday happenings. This is the ghost Pearl, who would much rather observe other people's stories than to think about her own unhappy one. It takes the friendship and confrontational questions of another traumatized ghost for her to come to terms with the painful memories of her strict mother and hateful brothers. In meantime, Frankie goes through her teen years and experiences her first love and loss. Pearl, witnessing Fran's emotions, is brought closer to her own lost life. The setting of the orphanage is well-researched. More about that in the interview with Laura Ruby. And Pearl's afterlife is original and poignant. The ghost girl reads The Hobbit over the shoulders of a library visitor, goes to a bar where she drinks not bourbon, served by a ghost barkeeper, and keeps revisiting a certain blue house to watch a young woman and her lover inside. The themes of forbidden love, racism, and dispossession will draw in many young readers. A little bit about Laura. She's a two-time National Book Award finalist. She writes fiction for adults, teens, and children. She's the author of the Prince Medal-winning novel Bone Gap, as well as 13 Doorways, Wolves Behind Them All. Other works include the Edgar-nominated children's mystery, Lily's Ghost, the ALA Quick Peak for Teens, Good Girls, and a collection of interconnected short stories about blended families for adults. I'm not Julia Roberts. There's also the York Trilogy. She's on the faculty of Hamline University Masters in Writing for Children's Program. She lives in the Chicago area with her husband and her two cats who serve as her creative advisors. So now we're going to jump into the interview. Hello, Laura, and thanks for joining us on the show today. And thank you so much for having me. You're quite welcome. So we're going to talk about 13 doorways, wolves behind them all. Wolves are a recurring theme in your book. So let's start with a statement from one of your narrators. She's kind of an omniscient narrator, the ghost Pearl. At the end of one chapter, she states, I am the wolf. She tells another ghost she meets, I know hunger. I know how it hurts. Is she, in a sense, the wolf behind her own door of consciousness? You know, that is a really interesting question. Um, When I wrote the line, uh, I know hunger, I know how it hurts. Um, I was thinking about hunger, not just like physical hunger, um, but in terms of spiritual and emotional 
um, and even sexual hunger, um, which are the kinds of hunger that Pearl knows firsthand. Um, but now that you ask the question, um, I'd say that she is she is acting like the wolf behind the door of her own consciousness, just waiting for her to open it. You know, she's avoided investigating her own past because it could metaphorically tear her apart. So, you know, I think some part of her really does know that it's a risk to investigate her own past. Therefore, you know, she's fascinated with a lot of the girls in the orphanage, I think, as a way to avoid thinking about herself too much. Yeah, she's definitely wants to avoid all the pain that those hungers have led to. <laughs> yep, it's uh, her superpower, avoidance. <laughs> so let's stay with Pearl for a moment. She has contact with other ghosts and with angels as well. A ghost she befriends eventually becomes an angel. What determines the transition between a ghost and an angel? So, in the world of this book, and I think in other kinds of ghost stories, uh, people become ghosts when they're ripped from the world prematurely. Um, you know, if they're victims of crime, if they die young, if they have unfinished business in the land of the living. Um, but I was thinking, too, that others become ghosts because of guilt. You know, so they aren't necessarily victims, but perpetrators of violence, or maybe both. You know, maybe they're both victor, uh, victim and perpetrator. Um, so the transition between ghost and angel, and I think an angel, you know, is someone who can actually move on from the world mm-hmm. as it is, move on from their past. And it depends on whether or not you've confronted your own past, um, the life that you've left behind, like whether you've forgiven and have been forgiven. So I think that Pearl remains a ghost because she hasn't been able to do that. She hasn't been able to forgive others and she hasn't been able to forgive herself. And I don't know if the living, you know, that, you know, that she left behind have been able to forgive her either. Mm -hmm. Um, So it makes her a rather lonely figure in the book, Um, which again, like I was, as I was answering the earlier question, explains her fascination with the living. She does seem lonely, but she also pushes away company. For example, she does end up with a pet, which is a lovely fox that she keeps trying to chase away. And it just continues, (laughs) it continues to follow her wherever she goes. And she calls it a beautiful, stupid thing. But, uh, when she finally realizes this fox is going to stay with her and she can't get rid of it, then she calls it wolf, which was a little mystifying. Could you explain that? Yeah. Um, so the fox, I think, operates as a sort of familiar um, to Pearl, the way that cats are often depicted as familiars for witches. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking fox about foxes. Uh, you know, I love foxes. I have a thing for foxes. I have a thing for lots of animals. Um, but I think we associate foxes, whether the fox is male or female, we associate them with women, with the feminine. You know, so we call pretty women foxes or foxy, um, even though that's as much a smear as a compliment, because foxes are also considered kind of devious and sly mm-hmm. and sneaky smart. 
Um, so when Pearl calls the fox wolf, I think she's projecting a lot of what has been said about Pearl herself. You know, Pearl is beautiful. Um, you know, she's a beautiful fox, and she, but she's also a secret kind of wolf or a special kind of dangerous, you know, kind of dangerous and only in the way that only women are. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a joke that she's <laughs> making, but kind of a painful one, you know, that comes out of realizations about her own past. You know, like when she ran through the woods hoping to come upon a wolf when she was young, um, you know, wolves to her represent a sort of masculine power, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something that she wants. But instead of a wolf, you know, she gets a fox. She gets <laughs> the feminine. You know, she's left with herself, right? So it's sort of ironic. Yeah. Wolf. Well, speaking of beautiful, stupid things, <laughs> let's talk about Stella. <laughs> much yes, of, yeah, Stella. Much of the book focuses on life in an orphanage for a group of girls, including Frankie or Heron. And Frankie and her sister Tony are abandoned there by their father, and Frankie has her way of dealing with rejection. Uh, Another girl at the orphanage, Stella, who's very beautiful, compensates for her loneliness using other methods. And Stella seems unaware of the possible implications of her actions. So can you talk a little about that? Yeah. um, Stella actually became more and more fascinating to me as I wrote the book. So early on, you know, I didn't know that she was going to become kind of as important as she is. Um, she's been damaged in, in, in the way that a lot of orphans have been damaged, you know, abandoned by the people who are supposed to love her. And she's so, so she's, she's hungry for affection. I would say even desperate for it. Um, and because her parents celebrated her beauty over everything else, she has this great need. You know, one could say that she has a sort of narcissistic need to fill herself with attention and with compliments and the only kinds of compliments she, she, she feels um, familiar with, right? She doesn't know how to have real relationships. She doesn't really know how to have connection. Um, I actually think real connection would be terrifying to her because mm-hmm. real connections require being vulnerable. Um, but I don't think she's unusual, not in the world of the book and sort of in the larger world. There are a lot of people who are walking around who cannot seem to fathom the implications of their own <laughs> actions. See American TV where there's lots of people walking around with no masks on. Um, I call these people plot impaired. Um, they're like the, they're the people who go to the movies and talk through the whole film because they can't predict what the characters will do. So they keep asking lots of questions like, wait, is that guy the murderer? Is it that one? Is it him? And you can't watch movies with them because they just don't seem to be able to understand, you know, any kind of consistency in character. So they're surprised by everything. And Stella is one of those people. So she's so desperate for attention um, that she shuts aside any thought that our actions will come back to haunt her in any way. She'd rather be satisfied in the, long, in the, in the short term than think about what could happen tomorrow. So I think you could say that Stella is a much younger, prettier, and less vulgar version of the current U.S. president. Yeah, I was thinking, uh, yeah, narcissistic and impulsive. Yeah, yeah. And also just focused on what is happening in the moment right now. Like, how can I win right now? How can I get what I want right now? You know, let alone what is going to happen five minutes from now, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a, it's a constant, like you're living in a constant present um, which I, I suppose can be useful sometimes, but that's 
Yeah. <laughs> well, it's good if you're a Tibetan monk and living in a constant yeah, presence. <laughs> that that implies some inner... spiritual mastery, which I don't think Stella and uh, other people have. <laughs> I, oh, I don't, and I don't think that they're trying to find inner peace either. Mm-mm. Well, all of your main characters, Pearl, Frankie, and another ghost we meet later in a book fall in love, and they all suffer as a consequence. You state, girls were punished so hard for their love, so hard, hard enough to break them. What do you think leads to that? And was that only a function of those times? Is that still the case? Uh, It's still happening, and I really wish it wasn't. Um, This is something that I've been thinking about my entire life, you know, from the time I was a child and realized um, that the word girl could be used as a slur, as mm-hmm. a slam. Like, you know, you throw like a girl, you run like a girl, you cry like a girl, all of that stuff. Um, I, I, I think that today, even that the powers that be who are men and white men mostly still dictate what women should look like, what they should wear, who they should love and how they should love. So when a woman attempts to ignore these sort of cultural rules, you know, if a woman is, I don't know, too tall or too fat or too dark-skinned or too queer or too loud, mm-hmm. different from what the powers that be have declared desirable, she is punished for it, you know, so she's criticized or she's shunned, even attacked, killed, um, especially if that woman is unapologetic about her physicality or her desires and her opinions. Um, you know, if you can think about, like, businesses, like how many businesses make money by first making women feel self-conscious about some aspect of their own body. You know, there's something wrong with your thighs or your bellies or your skin or your eyebrows. And then they sell them some stupid product that's supposed to fix this imaginary problem that was never really a problem. So I think that this constant policing of women's bodies and women's desires, you know, at the heart of this is terror that if women could choose for themselves who and how they wanted to love mm-hmm. that many men, that many men in this culture would not be chosen. That many men, including the pasty morons making all of these, these decisions, they would be left out. Like who would pick those people? <laughs> you know, all those men have is structural power. Mm-hmm. They don't have the power to connect emotionally because the patriarchy robs them of that. You know, so in a way, this the system that gives them the power also robs them of, right. of of the ability to make connections, to truly love, and all of these things. You know, so so they're not allowed to be fully human either, and that's something they don't. A lot of people just don't seem to realize. You know, yeah. they're they're impacted too. You know, they wouldn't want to cry like a girl. <laughs> right, and right. Well, have that would to be deal with their feelings of loss by going out and drinking with other men or acting out. Mm. And that's not really a therapeutic solution a lot of times. Right, right. Well, speaking of men, though, I found it interesting in a novel that even though the men were the ones who made the decisions and women had little direct power, much of the oppression was actually dealt out by other women. For example, we have a jealous preacher's daughter poisoning a rival, a bitter nun troubled by her family's participation in a Nazi regime beats Frankie severely, 
And though Frankie and Tony's father is the one who abandons them, it's their stepmother who actively mistreats them. Do you think that women who feel powerless are more apt to bully and mistreat when they are given an opportunity? Um, you know, this is another thing I've always been fascinated by. Um, and when I say fascinated, I mean literally fascinated, but also enraged and repulsed um, by women who gain power by throwing other women under the bus. Um, and while I do think women who feel powerless might be more apt to bully, uh, possibly. I, I also think it's a particular kind of woman who buys into a patriarchal kind of hierarchical power arrangement, you know, who get, who really gets into lording their tiny little power over women. Um, and I think really, you know, men wouldn't have the power that they have if they didn't have women to help them do it. You know, if all women decided to, to, to show up for each other in solidarity, men wouldn't be able to do what they've done. Like, if the people in power wouldn't be able to do what they've done. You know, because it's not all men, it's not all women, it's just like a certain small portion. So they, they wouldn't be able to. If everyone just sat down and said, no, nah, I'm not doing that, you know, they wouldn't have this power. But there are these women who buy into sexist notions that they are somehow not like other girls, that they're special somehow or they're chosen. You know, so you can see every Fox News hostess wearing the same blonde wig. You could see the current U.S. press secretary. You know, these are the women who don't want to see that they are expendable and as, as disposable as any other woman. But they only have their tiny little power if the men who control everything allow them to have it. So as soon as they become inconvenient in any way, they'd be thrown under the bus too. But like Stella, they, I don't know, I think there's a weird short-sightedness about the whole thing. You know, like they buy into the idea that they're special, you know, so of course they're not going to be thrown out of the bus. Of course, there's nothing going to happen to them. There's a story, um, I've seen this woman on Twitter, a, a, a prominent um, sort of right-wing woman, um, you know, who used to spout all kinds of goofy nonsense um, about other women and about whatever. Um she had a destructive affair with another right-winger, got pregnant, was abandoned by him and by all the other right-wingers, right? And she she wrote all kinds of things about how shocked she was. Like, it never occurred to her that as soon as she became an inconvenient person, that, that she would be left behind and abandoned. Like, she just thought she was special. She bought into that notion. So I think that that happens, too. You know, and now she realizes, like, that she's not special, but it took, you know, but it took her own abandonment to, to make her see that, you know, and she already did a lot of damage. Her vulnerability was revealed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I don't understand those women. They, they make no sense to me. Well, your book was, as they say in so many movies, inspired by a true story. Tell us about that. Okay, I love to tell you about that. Um, so this this book was a really long time in the making. Um, so I mean, I started it in the early 2000s. Um, I, when I first met my mother-in-law, uh, Frances Ponzo Metro. So she she was this really fascinating woman, tiny, tiny little petite woman, uh, Sicilian. She taught herself how to play the piano. She was a cook. She was a painter. She was a waitress. Um, but she was not 
big into telling stories about her own past. Like she didn't talk about it a lot, but every once in a while she would make this kind of cryptic comment. Um, so one of our first dinners, you know, she was serving spaghetti and meatballs as she is wont to do. She made great meatballs. Um, and I'm not even sure what we were talking about, but she said something like, you know, at the orphanage, when the nuns weren't looking, we used to sneak into the kitchens and steal an egg and suck out the insides. Um, or we'd, or we'd grab a scoopful of jello because we were so hungry. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, wait a minute, orphanage, nuns, what do we, you know, what's going on? Jello, what are you talking about? Um, and then she would say something like, want another meatball and just not answer the question. She just didn't think that it was an interesting story. So I had to ask a lot of questions to kind of get out, you know, to, to get from her what, what the story was. And it turns out that she, she was left in an orphanage in the 30s, in the 1930s, in an orphanage in Chicago, along with her brother and her sister. Um, she grew up during the Depression and World War II. And she told me in little bits and snippets about how her father brought her there, uh, about the death of her mother, about the abuse some of the orphans suffered, about the fact that her father took her brother and the children of his second wife out of the orphanage, but left Fran and her sister there until Fran was 17. Um, the thing is, she, like I said, she, she really didn't consider her, her own story all that important. And she was kind of amused by my interest in her life. Um, she just didn't think it was a big deal. I thought it was a huge deal. Like I thought her story had just, it was just endlessly fascinating to me, but she figured, but what she, what she did, and this is like so generous. Um, she thought if I thought it was worth, um, listening to that, I was, it was a story I was interested in. And I asked her, you know, if I could write about it. And she said, you know, if you think this is, is a good story, I will tell you whatever you want to, you want to know. So Basically, all I had to do was learn how to play cards. <laughs> she was a lead <laughs> card player. Um, we play rummy, and over games of rummy, she would answer all of my questions while she would beat the pants off me. Mm. Um, and so in between, you know, interviewing her and her brother and her sister and other orphans and doing all sorts of research um, and hearing all sorts of uh, some bananas, like family stories, um, you know, I started piecing together this, this tale. Um, so, you know, like there's some stories that didn't make it in there that like, that are probably apocryphal, like um, rumors that her dad was being chased by the Italian mob <laughs> right. or that her step, step siblings were wanted by the feds or whatever. There's like, all these really weird family stories. Um, but, and, you know, and I certainly did take liberties of, by including, you know, an entire ghost world yes, um, in the book. Although Fran thought that was really funny. <laughs> she loved it. Um, but the thing is, you know, I worked on this story for, for more than a decade and I just kept getting it wrong. I just, it just wasn't, it didn't work. Like it just did not work. And so it wasn't until I understood that the orphanage, um, though it was a difficult place to grow up, it was also sort of safe for her. Mm-hmm. You know, that despite the fact that, you know, the, it, it, it could be terrible to be there, the more painful were the betrayals 
perpetrated by those people who were supposed to love you and cherish you, you know, Mm -hmm. and that making your way in a world that thinks so little of you takes a particular kind of courage, Mm -hmm. you know, and a kind that's not always obvious from the outside. So, you know, by the time I got to, to, to really thinking about the book, you know, it's a story about France teen years, but it's also a story about girls. Right. You know, like just girls in general, girls across the decades, um, you know, and, 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 and how girls are, are, are often punished for their appetite and even for their love, sometimes especially for their love. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I mean, I certainly hope it honors her. She did get the chance to read. Fran did get the chance to read a, a draft of this um, some time ago. And, 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 you know, so even though she didn't get a chance to hold the published book in her hands, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that she's looking down and happy, you know, at the, at the, at the finished product. Ghost friend <laughs> or angel friend. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 13 Doorways, Wolves Behind Them All is a YA book and it deals with a lot of important heavy themes. So what distinguishes a YA book from one written for the adult market, in your opinion? Yeah, I love that question. Um, <laughs> you know, so I think what um, distinguishes a YA novel from an adult novel is not theme, you know, or difficulty or whatever. It's perspective. Mm-hmm. So I have a friend, Kelly Barnhill, the novelist Kelly Barnhill, um, and she, she has a shorthand for talking about this. So she says that elementary and middle school readers look outward. YA readers look inward and adult readers look backward as in, how did I get here? Mm-hmm. Um, so that doesn't mean that younger readers can't be introspective or that YA readers can't observe the world around them. Just that YA readers spend more time asking themselves about themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, who am I? Who do I want to be? Um, so I had a very particular challenge with this because it is based on this true story of, of Fran. Um, if I told the story from first-person point of view, which I tried for years, I tried <laughs> to do first-person, or even a limited sort of third-person, then the perspective of the novel would be extremely limited. Like, you know, I think in a, to the point of, of being ineffective, you know, so a girl who grew up in an institution in the 30s and 40s would know so little about the world around her that it, it would be really difficult to paint a picture of Chicago, mm-hmm. right, or even, you know, a, a world at war. Um, and I just wanted to tell a larger story. But if I used an omniscient narrator, which I also tried, by the way, <laughs> straight up omniscient narrator, um, the story sounded old-fashioned and antiquated, you know, and, and it had too much perspective. And I think that would have skewed the book mm-hmm. to the adult. So I wanted to combine the best aspects of first person, which is immediacy, you know, and intimacy, and the best aspects of an omniscient point of view, which is that wide perspective, in Pearl. So I wanted her to be both, right? So um, that's what created Pearl, right? Your need for right, a somewhat omniscient narrator to give a bigger perspective. Yep. So oh. though she has been around for a long time, and she has been around for a long time, and mm-hmm. she knows a lot about the world and its history and its workings, she doesn't know a lot about herself. So she's stuck at 17 asking herself, who am I? Mm-hmm. Who am I? So it was important for me to keep Pearl a young adult emotionally 
still a huge mystery to herself and still capable of great movement and change the way that young adults are. So I think, or I'm hopeful that that's, you know, that's why this lands in, in young adult world rather than straight up adult. Mm-hmm. The focus of it. Yeah. The emotional yeah. world focus of it. Well, uh, what projects are you working on now? Oh, a lot. Um, <laughs> You know, well, you know, between freaking out over the news, <laughs> when I can actually work. Um, I just released a book called The Map of Stars. It is the third book in a middle grade series, because I also write for, write for middle grade audiences, mm-hmm. um, in the York series. And that is about a group of kids who are trying to solve a grand cipher with clues set in the streets and monuments and history of an alternate uh, New York City, and that has lots of robots and and hybrid animals, and mm. it's uh, you know it's a, sort of a grand adventure, and that was really fun to write. But that was conclusion that was just released, and I'm um, currently I am working on a brand new YA. Uh, it still has um, it's still a genre mashup, as I am want to do. I don't I don't really like to stick within genre lines. You know, I a lot of times like to mix up you know, historical fantasy or mystery slash history slash fantasy slash sci-fi. Um, so it's, it's still a mashup, but it is skewing a little bit more contemporary than my last few books. Um, I'm going to keep the details uh, a little bit of a mystery for now uh, until I finish it. I'm, 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 I'm almost at the end and I'm hopeful that I will be able to type to type uh, the end uh, this week, even yeah. maybe, hopefully, fingers crossed. Well, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and talking with us today. Oh, I was happy to do it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network and Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I've been talking to Laura Ruby about her latest YA book. Her website is lauraruby.com. It has all the links to her social media. You can follow her on Twitter at ThatLauraRuby. Join me in September when I chat with debut novelist, scientist, and self-described eldritch monster, Creamy Muhammad, about Beneath the Rising. That interview promises to be very funny, at least if my emails with Primi are any indication. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the historical fantasy series set in post-war Europe, Falcon Flies Alone, The Falcon Strikes, The Falcon Soars. My latest book is a YA fantasy glow of fire. You'll find the podcast schedule on my website, gabriellematthew.com. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more at Gabrielle Author. And my name is spelled G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. And I hope you tune in in September.